This is the Future of Security Operations podcast brought to you by Tynes. This show is dedicated to empowering SecOps leaders to reimagine how their teams work so they can scale their security efforts and build a team that achieves more with less. In each episode, we'll learn from a security leader who has found a way to free their team from tedious manual tasks and remove the barriers that are preventing them from doing high value strategic work that truly matters. We'll learn from their mistakes, distill their best practices, and leave you with actionable insights that you can immediately put to work with your team. I'm your host, Thomas Kinsler, COO and co-founder of Tynes. Now, let's jump right into today's show. This week, I'm delighted to be joined on the Future of Security Operations podcast by Maury Haber, Chief Security Officer at Beyond Trust, the leading privileged access management company. With over two decades of experience in the IT and security world, Maury is a true thought leader. He's penned four books about cybersecurity and regularly shares his insights via articles for the community's benefit. Furthermore, he helps guide industry processes by being an early founding member of Transparency in Cyber, as well as sitting on the board of the Identity Defined Security Alliance Executive Advisory Board. Maury, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. Look forward to speaking. Me too. Um, Before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and perhaps some of the mission of Beyond Trust? Certainly. Uh, Beyond Trust is a leader in identity and security access, mainly focusing on privileged access solutions. As crazy as it may sound, uh, I've been with the company almost 19 years now, which is something completely unheard of in this industry. But I look at the company more of as a career than a job, uh, starting originally as just a solutions engineer, working my way through product management, business development, CTO, and now CISO, as the company has grown, uh, taking on new and larger roles, but also shrinking them back to now just being chief security officer. A little bit of a differentiation from being only the chief information security officer, which some people ask why there is no information in my title. It's because outside of being responsible for the security teams uh, on-premise and the security of our cloud solutions, I also run an evangelist team which helps go out and do podcasts like this, promote technology, author books, periodicals, uh, speak at conferences, and uh, consult uh, as appropriate with uh, companies and agencies to better their security. Bob, and yeah, there's there's so many things there. Uh, I definitely want to understand uh, the the other life of somebody that's been in a company for for 19 years. It's really uh, it's it's really impressive, especially in the security space. The tenure of a CISO isn't uh, isn't usually quite a uh, quite that long. And I know you've had a whole lot of different roles, but can you tell me, I suppose, like a little bit about your journey? How you even like, and I know you've been CTO as well, and and a, a number of other roles. But how how did you get into security in the first place? Uh, my security journey really started 19 years ago. Uh, my previous employer was Computer Associates, something that's public information. Um, and I was doing um, basically what was called the SWAT team, the Software Action Team. And that allowed me to help work with beta cycles, new products, et cetera. Uh, my former boss uh, at the time basically said, look, I'm going to this company. We know a lot of the people over there, but it does cybersecurity. And in the early 2000s, that was not something we really thought of. We were thinking of firewalls, but vulnerability management, not something people thought of. Um, So I came over, I learned a ton, uh, got scared a ton because of what you can actually do when exploiting vulnerabilities. And we're talking days of Sasser and Blaster, and it was the cool thing to knock things over, truly was. But we also learned very fast that knocking things over could have massive business impacts. 
taking down entire floors, manufacturing environments, even breaking things physically. So with that, learned the best practices, what you should do in cybersecurity, what you shouldn't, what is harmful, what is not. And my career evolved from just being a solutions engineer to running the team, to being product management, to being in charge of product management, um, to owning the direction of the company, to handling the security for the company, and now only security, just because as a company grows, um, it's impossible to wear too many hats. So I focused on the security aspects versus uh, the products themselves. I love that journey. And it's it's great that you've, I suppose, gone from that, uh, I suppose, that solutions engineer space all, all the way up and including up to and including uh, like being uh, being CTO. But it's it gives you a lot of empathy for uh, for the product teams as well. It's something I think most modern security leaders have. But even still, a couple of years ago, that definitely wasn't the case. There was still a, you know, still a little bit of tension between like security and technology teams. There was, and there still is. One thing that I think the listeners may forget is software is written by people. Take the AI chat GPT pieces out of the equation. We can touch on that later. <laughs> it's, it's still written by people. People make mistakes. When mistakes are made, security problems happen. Unless it's poorly designed from the get-go, generally most vulnerabilities, mistakes, configurations are just based on human mistakes. And having both sides of the house in terms of thought process help realize it's a bug, but it's a bug that can be exploited. And that's something that people have to take away. It's just software created by humans. Yeah, exactly. And it's okay if uh, like, you know, it's okay if things go wrong. It's okay if these incidents happen, they're expected to happen when it's software that's uh, developed by humans. We just have to be all, all on the same page while we yeah, try to remediate and try to get things back to uh, back to where they should be. And um, like, I suppose starting out in the in the full management space, you've seen security evolve. Like full management today is completely different than uh, you know full management 18, 19 years ago. But I suppose, how would you describe the state of security operations today? So the state of security operations today, compared to vulnerability management or even what we're doing today, has undergone a massive cultural and perception shift. 18 years ago, doesn't matter if it was vulnerabilities, firewalls, configuration, there was a lot of denial, a lot. People would go, that's not a problem. Don't worry about that. That's never going to deal with anything. Until the first exploits could take advantage of something like a buffer overflow, um, there was a lot of denial. It's a nuisance. And getting that cultural shift and education into the mindsets of people is where today security operations is. People understand the risks, they acknowledge it. And when that denial or that rush off type of mentality occurs, it's easily managed. So security has become more of a operational piece to ensure the integrity, the life cycle, the delivery of the service versus an annoyance that someone has found and the business shouldn't worry about it. Yeah, it's it's still people process technology at the end of the day though, right? It is, but it is a mindset shift. And that's hopefully what I'm trying to convey to you. Uh, For anybody that has been in the industry a long time, you know exactly what I mean. It's, ah, yeah, it's vulnerable. Don't worry about it. It can't harm anything. And all of a sudden it harms a lot. Versus today, it's, wow, that is exploitable. Let's use our processes. Let's go patch. Let's go do things. So the mindset recognizes the risk compared to, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, that makes uh, it makes a ton of sense. And yeah, I think like as an industry, we've matured, but also like I think yeah, we've we've learned from a lot of those incidents that 
giving people access to uh, like accounts that they maybe shouldn't have access to, or it could be like giving, yeah, maybe third parties or vendors access to a like backdoor access to your network and things like that are, yeah, they can, can come back and bite you. Or yeah, that vulnerability that wasn't patched, that was very low risk, but actually happened to be front facing is, uh, yeah, it's very dangerous. It is. So, and I, yeah. I think a lot of that is the downstream shift of security operations to not only being a business function, but also consumers understanding it. Look, we all have Androids and iPhones or Hopefully that's the majority of us, right? Um, We get our updates, security updates, and we patch fairly quickly, hopefully, because we know that the exploitation of even our mobile devices could lead to our bank accounts being hijacked. It is a little bit of a shame in some areas that security updates or the details are still not prominently displayed. So security professionals or businesses can understand the risk. They may be hid underneath, hey, there's 20-something new emojis, and that's the first entry. That's something that's still got to mature further, where the risks are placed in a proper location, front and center for the people that care about them, versus trying to bed them in a consumer or business world and going, don't worry about it. It's there. Just have to click two layers deep. But we want to talk about the crazy good stuff first, because many times the security stuff is why you're hitting update, not just because you have a new emoji. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's also like it's it's incumbent or it's imperative the security or that these large organizations promote that security as well because you know it's if Apple can make mistakes and there's something that's you know vulnerable or well, Microsoft has been uh, has been shipping vulnerable software for a long time but have improved a huge amount. But if if that can happen, it, then it's okay that you know smaller companies or other organizations can be you know telling people to patch as well. But if if you know you get it from the very top. Or the most like the most senior organizations. Senior is not the right word there, but you know what I'm saying. I'm that like when, when they say, "Hey, this is something that's really important to do." It kind of yeah, it helps. It helps make it normalized for every other organization out there that they that there are patches that need to be applied, and that it's not yeah not the end of the world that like something was shipped with a uh, with a vulnerability. That's true. And within the last five years, vulnerabilities have taken their place as being hopefully one of the mature security practices mm-hmm. that everyone knows. But in more recent times, to answer your question a little bit deeper, security operations has had to add additional risks to their monitoring management portfolio. And that is the identity-based risks, whether that's humans or machines. Because as since COVID, a lot of us are still working from home and will continue to work from home. We have now that perimeter-less security model that everybody's talking about, The buzzwords with zero trust, which everybody is talking about, and the way you secure a remote worker is vastly different than what you did when they were sitting at a desk in a cubicle with firewalls, IDS, IPS, and all of those security controls. So modern SecOps is now looking at identity-based risks and automation-based risks based on those identities because modern entry points are taking advantage of identity account relationship weaknesses. I read somewhere that during COVID or in the first couple of months after COVID, the number of RDP devices available like on the internet went up something like 100%. And as a result, the number of like ransomware attacks associated with insecure RDP devices went up significantly and that you know, resulted in the, well, part of the significant trend in ransomware over the last few years. So definitely identity-based risk is like at the forefront of a lot of security people's minds. And that's where Beyond Trust comes in, right? It does. So it's not meant to be a segue, but from a privileged account standpoint or identity threat or identity attack vector perspective, that is where Beyond Trust comes in. 
But if you consider you're working from home and you're typing in a username and password and authenticating, that's incredibly weak. That's mm-hmm. why we want multi-factor, two-factor authentication, step-up authentication, or even biometrics. However, we've been lately finding in security operations flaws with many of those technologies, specifically like push-based MFA. That's a flaw. That has real-world attack vectors that are exploitable, everything from fatigue to man-in-the-middle attacks. So security operations has now got to worry about before the vulnerability exploit even can possibly occur, um, is the person authenticating who they are and what is your confidence in getting there? and then performing the actions to monitor their behavior correctly. This is also true for automation. You're now doing this with all different machines and machine accounts behind the scenes where an MFA type approach doesn't work. So the secrets that they exchange to perform the automation have to be rotated, managed, um, kept under lock and key. And then the behavior from something potentially using those secrets to authenticate or even perform an authorization of a transaction inappropriately escalated. So modern SecOps, huge in terms of this. Beyond Trust specializes in the privileged access and the rotation of those accounts, or what we call least privilege as an industry standard, removing the rights to only allow specific functions to work to ensure the integrity of those transactions. And provide presumably access, you know, when necessary, just in time to with the absolute minimum amount of scopes. That is correct. The, the concept of zero standing privileges is huge. That is removing any access that should not be used um, at any given point, regardless of privilege, but then using just in time to grant the access during a workflow, during appropriate, when allowed, when approved, with proper change control. And the most, most important thing, and I can only stress this over and over again, is without end user overhead. These concepts have got to be used in modern SecOps transparently so it's actually faster for the end user to get the job done than not. Give you a great example, just something real fast and simple. In a traditional recommended Windows world, you drive, log in with your daily driver, your standard account. You do email and everything else. And if you need to do an administrative function, you get that pop-up that says, enter your admin name and your admin password. You type it in and the admin function works. That's a risk. The goal is never to give admin rights, have that account, not even make it local in case there's an application-based vulnerability. When you implement proper identity security with privileged access and the concepts of least privilege, that application runs as an admin and the end user doesn't even know it. There's still a daily driver. There's still their standard account. They run the task. They click the app. The app runs elevated based on rule processing or some other form of tech to do it. They never have to know that second account, and it's actually faster for the end user to get admin access than it is using traditional operating sys-based tools. Yeah, it encourages best practices uh, and like yeah, makes makes life easier. And I'll I'll definitely want to touch on that kind of uh, without end user overhead uh, piece in a little bit. I think that like those repetitive manual tasks lead to a lot of challenges, not not only in uh, in this space, but in a whole lot of other spaces. And pushback. If your employees don't accept the technology, um, you just get pushback, the resistance. If you have to add five mouse clicks for everything they do or for certain operations, they're angry. They don't want that. And you can't adopt a technology the 
user community won't embrace. And I'm not trying to discredit any uh, anybody sure. or say that they're not. Uh, they're hey, not, I welcome the challenge. Go for it. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, no, I'm, I'm more just saying that like that. And they'll go down the path of least resistance, which is being like, all right, I'm just going to copy this into my clipboard or paste it into a notepad. That's like quicker to access, which is absolutely not the process that you want anybody to uh, anybody to do. Correct. And that's where the challenge is, is uh, you know what? You made me use, let's say, a PAM password solution or a personal password manager or a password vault or password, say any of those texts. Wow. Mm. You got me used to going to the website, copying the password for the day, pasting it in. And now you're asking me to change it. That's kind of a bad practice. You have Mm -hmm. that password in memory. It has been seen on your screen. Why not take the best practice approach to security and you don't know it, you never see it. It's never in memory and it's auto injected somewhere else before your session even starts. And it's there for even faster. So getting or becoming more modern from where we were, you know, 20 years ago with just a eight character alphanumeric to 16 character using potentially foreign keys, or I've even some people using emojis now, which I think is wild. Um, why not just completely get rid of the password and go password list when you can, whether that's based on fingerprint, biometrics, auto-injection technology, secrets management for automation. Those are the big, big changes that we'll be seeing. Yeah, I hear you. And how, how does this work for like, or is it, does it work the exact same way for the cloud? Does this have any additional benefits, especially for those like organizations that are, you know, going multi-cloud right now or looking yeah. at it? That's a great question. Uh, you mentioned in my bio, I've written multiple books. The last book is called Cloud Attack Vectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came out at the end of last year. And one of the concepts that we cover heavily is the more things change, the more they stay the same. We are tons of new products in the cloud, from cloud, ser- uh, cloud security workload protection to CNAP, uh, tons of new acronyms. And all those came from the analyst community, which blows my mind, frankly. When you start boiling down what these new products do, they are doing vulnerability management. They are doing log management of a form. They are doing patch management in ways. But the way they're doing them is not with scanning technology and agents. They're using APIs. So they're really just implementing our security 101 best practices, things we've been doing 20 years plus in a completely different way. So when you're talking about managing account access in the cloud, One, it's not your computer. Two, it's not your infrastructure. Three, you're going to pay for logs and log storage and everything else. So how do you take your best practice security disciplines and apply them? Well, you're not going to be doing RDP or SSH, I hope. You could for a full machine. But for workloads and serverless functions, you still need to do access. You still need to do vulnerability. You still need to do patch. You still need to do privileges. So you now take the more things stay the same, those disciplines, and do them in a new way. You're going to be managing the gateway a different way. You're going to be providing access a different way. You're going to be doing entitlements, which are privileges, rights, and permissions a different way, but the same way in terms of access, MFA, et cetera. So the cloud is just basically another computer in a different different place. Apply your traditional security disciplines. Find the tools, whether they're brand new, because the analyst community has created all new categories, okay, fine, or many of the traditional vendors have those tools, Mm -hmm. and they just do it a different way. And you can apply it the same way, whether it's a 
you know, join or move or lever processes, whether it's MFA, whether it's privileged access, you don't you don't necessarily always need that new name. Yeah, could completely understand. I completely, uh, com- completely agree. Um, I want to transition over to, I suppose, like a little bit more of your internal role as uh, as CSO. You've just, you know, you've obviously written written a number of books, and you've obviously got a like a significant community, uh, both following but also like network. But how how do you keep on top of the latest issues and the latest uh, the latest threats? The latest threats, issues, conversations are just reading. I, I think I've been quoted in the past and I've been called out for it and I'm happy to be. Um, what do I do in my spare time? I actually like writing. Uh, I, I might pause and hesitate. I blush a little bit from admitting that. But everyone has their outlets. Uh, sitting down and cranking out information helps me regurgitate what I've learned. I do spend uh, an hour, two hours a day reading a, a wide variety of art- articles online. I don't visit the same websites every day, but there are some that I look to more frequently than others. But reading something alone does not help you formulate your own opinions or, you know what, that's wrong, that's right. You put the two together, we got something better. Once I digest that type of knowledge, speaking to clients, going to presentations, going to conferences, whatever the input may be, I then output that in the form of writing and I actually enjoy writing. So I stay on top of things by the ingestion of various sources and then bringing it out. Now, some may say, don't you find a bias going to one place or another, or if you're talking geopolitical or anything like that? No, I'll read both sides of the discussion. I will read the vendor side. I will read the client side. I'll read the liberal side, the conservative side, because as crazy as it sounds, sometimes these things do fall on political lines. And then I'll formulate my own opinions and and then bring them out. And that's how I stay in front of things or help build my community is by voicing my own opinion. One of the things that uh, when I talk to to CISOs or talk to directors of security teams, that's kind of on a lot of their minds is the topic of like... uh, mental health and cybersecurity, both for CISOs and for their teams. I know you've written a little bit about imposter syndrome and about mental health in the past. What are you, what are you doing in Beyond Trust or what are some of the, the best teams uh, that you see out there doing to address address that challenge? Well, I can't take credit for this joke, but I will say CISOs and many of the professionals do sleep like babies. If any of you have young kids, you know babies are up every couple of hours. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> mental health is huge because not getting a good night's sleep or stressing over something is massive. Uh, I will say that there are times that the teams run hot, but they very rarely run cold. They come down to a lukewarm temperature. This is a thing of self-discipline um, that I think most people have to learn in order to be a security professional. You have to have the ability to say, I'm burning out. I need a mental health day. And having an employer or an environment that says, you know what? You need to take tomorrow off. That's fine. It wasn't a planned vacation for six weeks or something like that. You have to be able to self-regulate your own mental health in terms of burnout. If your boss is pushing you, pushing you, pushing you, pushing you, and you go, look, I need a day to just unwind and get my thoughts together. And your boss says, no, it's not a healthy environment. But burnout and mental health or repetitive work, look at the logs, look at the logs, look at the logs, are real issues in cybersecurity. And I can only tell engineers and my peers, learn your balance, learn yourself. When you hit that trigger point, 
step back before you go over the edge. Do you do that yourself? Do you, do you like take, take days or do you encourage your team to take days? Or, I do. Yeah, uh, and check in I with do. them, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, my management style, I think is not industry standard. If my guys teams say, look, I, I need to leave this afternoon, whatever the reason, is there anything that I have to worry about while you're gone? Anything that you're working on that I might get a phone call for? 99.9% of the time, the answer is no. Okay. Yeah. Covered. Uh, here at Beyond Trust, we do have an unlimited PTO policy. We have no vacation time. If their work is complete and a person needs time, they just take it with management approval, manager approval. So we don't measure, uh, look, you have a week vacation, you have three days sick time. And I try to instill that philosophy to my employees to be flexible with what they need, personal, mental, professional, training, uh, car issue, family issue, whatever it may be, as long as there's something that's not going to implode because they've decided to take some time. Yeah, it's so important and it's so good to hear. Um, I'm, I'm often a little bit skeptical of the unlimited PTO days where I'm like, I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure how much I'd, I'd take in those circumstances. But for a lot of organizations, it uh, it seems to work really well. And especially if you've got a boss that's uh, that's encouraging you to do it. It is. And we we get a report of what the time people are taking and the people that don't take time. You kind of go, look, dude, you know, previously you had two weeks, you had three weeks, you've been here that long, you you, you know. It's seven-year sabbatical, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, you kind of enforce back to them. You're burning. You're running too hot. Um, even though they may not be complaining, uh, the addiction to work is a real thing too. Where someone is literally a workaholic, and that does not work in cybersecurity either. No, I, I think in cybersecurity as well, we kind of viewed. I talk about this a little bit, but a little bit as a vocation where you feel like you have to do this. You know, it's your it's your obligation rather than it's a a job. And in some cases, you know, when there's an incident, there are those obligations, but you can't take the weight of the company or the weight of the problem on, uh, on yourself, uh, self completely. Well, that's true. Very much more true for the CISOs because yeah. the weight is on us. And if mm-hmm. we are not doing our job correctly, or a CISO by title is negligent, then there are potentially legal repercussions. The one thing you want to make sure is that you do not get into a situation of negligence. You do not ignore items. Even if you're planning to fix something and you acknowledge the flaw and you draw out the plans and you're in motion, odds are of you being accused of negligence, unless you blatantly say, yeah, it's a three-year project for me to patch one vulnerability that's critical, um, or, you know, hey, we've got all these rogue accounts, we'll remove them in six months. Um, that type of negligence just can't happen. And yeah. that's, that's a different issue. I want to touch on something else that you, you just mentioned a few a few minutes ago, which is those like repetitive manual tasks that lead to that burnout. But yeah, what, what are Beyond Trust doing to to help that? And I suppose I mean that as a company rather than as a, a product. As a product, obviously, Beyond Trust helps people, you know, prevent those repetitive copying and pasting or logging into accounts or you know, gaining uh, gaining additional access. But, but uh, you know, on the security team, what are you doing to prevent those, you know, repetitive looking at logs, et cetera? So as a CSO, um, one of the things we try to do, and we're not perfect, is by cross-training so that one mm-hmm. person is, that's not their only job and letting others take on the task. One, they get a little bit of empathy when someone is going through logs every day, uh, but two, cross-train it. Also, if something can be automated, I'm a huge favor of that. Again, take AI and ML out of the equation. That's a whole different discussion. 
But if standard threat hunting and filtering can be automated, let's do that out of the gate, especially if you're clicking the same things over and over again. So one, it's cross-training. Two, it's trying to remove the manual steps um, and using other technology that can help on top of that uh, is key. From a Beyond Trust product standpoint, this is where auditing user behavior, AI, and ML come into play mm-hmm. so that when you are dealing with privileged accounts, someone's not left going through uh, their you know session logs and everything over and over and over again while you still can. Um, it is applying modern technology to eliminate in the solutions themselves that type of repetitive behavior. Yeah, and giving people a, I suppose, a standardized view or a single pane of glass view where you don't have to understand uh, yeah, what what the cloud configurations are for multiple different clouds, or what uh, yeah, yeah, what so it looks take, like. Take a typical session. If a privileged session occurs on a relatively, you know, frequent basis, or not even frequent basis, yeah. but the behavior of trimming a database or doing whatever the task is happens, the a good privilege tool can learn that session and then predict when the behavior deviates. That's fairly manual in most solutions today. Doing that in an automated context and then letting the auditors do a manual review when necessary, that just saves time, fatigue, burnout, everything we've been speaking about. Yeah, it allows people to focus on those more impactful risk reduction efforts for their uh, for, for their own business. One of the areas I'm really interested in uh, is, I suppose, like, like every other professional, but security instance, what people have learned from them. But I've been trying out this new... Uh, so it's this new sec- section on the podcast, which is like, what are some of the crazy incidents that you've worked and what have you learned from them in particular? So is there any particular uh, security incident? And you don't, I suppose if you've worked in, I was going to say, you don't have to name the, uh, you don't have to name the company, but if you worked in the same organization for uh, nearly 20 years, it's going to be hard to say, well, when I was at company, a different company, but I suppose, are there any interesting incidents that you can share, which you've, uh, which you learned from? There's a lot. Uh, in my second book, uh, Asset Attack Vectors, there's a chapter called uh, In the Trenches. And I think I listed about 15 stories of nice. this type of scenario. Everything from entire businesses being shut down uh, because they allowed the all distribution group in their email and someone dropped an illicit photo in that was you know, highly illegal. But since it's in people's phones and emails, um, you have to call the FBI. That's the law. Yep. Shut them down. I've seen incidents from sim jacking to uh, you know uh, MFA fatigue to all sorts of other type of problems recently that just make your head spin and going, how did that person even fall for that? Oh, they got a text message thinking it was the postal service. They were actually expecting a package that day, clicked on it, and now their phone is compromised. Um, can't really fault them. They've been waiting for something and they thought it was actually the postal office because it was using a shortened URL, all sorts of problems. Uh, but I would have to say that the most modern ones that people are experiencing or that I'm seeing is based on those security best practices for single factor, password reuse, not compromised on the dark web. There's still too many of them out there. And with a little social engineering, someone gets popped. Um, I'll leave the stories at that, but I think it's going to wrap back to just good hygiene and identity practices. I hear you. Uh, In the Trenches would be a good name for a podcast as uh, as well, or or another uh, another book. And um, I yeah, there was one 
one incident I was involved in, which yeah, it was it was a very it was a very bad one uh, for our end, but it was yeah, the vector was a um yeah, just a macronable malware, but the subject was like your divorce proceedings dot docx, and the person was you know going through a going divorce. through a breakup of their marriage and going through a divorce, and they opened uh and yeah, that was a that was the beginning of a long couple of weeks for 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 me and some some folks in the team. Yeah, you just reminded one of that I heard the other week and probably a very interesting one. One of the more active attack vectors is to scrape social media, specifically things like LinkedIn for job changes or anything else. Mm -hmm. What ends up happening is you'll get a phishing attack based on the job change, thinking that, you know, hey, there's no way they would know who I am or anything else. But in, in a particular case, that job change also had an address change and everything else. Um, they sent the payroll company a, an email, even though it said clearly this is coming from an external and the email address was not associated yeah. with the user. Please change my payroll to a, another location. That ended up with the person's pay, uh, paycheck not being received and going into an oblivion. So the payroll department completely faulted by not seeing, hey, this is not an internal email. It's not even his address or scraping social media to see, look, he changed jobs in the company. And whether the address was public or not, they said, look, I'm changing bank accounts too. So trust, but verify anything sensitive like that. Someone's always got to go back and go, hey, you know what? Did you really authorize this bank change or something like that? So um, both the employee and employer do not become victims. Another example of the simple, simple enough social engineering, but devastatingly effective one and it all happens. You wrote a piece recently for Forbes uh, about ChatGPT, and I know this is a completely different can of worms, so I don't want to go too uh, go too too much uh, too much into it. We got, you could talk about it for months, but apart from like you know uh, artificial general intelligence meltdown of society, etc., what do you think we as security teams need to be worried about from uh, from ChatGPT? The article I wrote for Forbes was covering specifically software development. And a yeah. quick nutshell, it covers two topics. Uh, one is that if you ask ChatGDBT to create code, it will create functional code. But it may be completely vulnerable, exploitable, and not using any security best practices. That's risk number one. may not even adhere to your internal standards or even be properly documented. Uh, number two is when you do ask it to create things, um, you may have to put PII in. This is my server. This is my connection. This is my IP, what, whatever it may be. So all of those queries become public information. From a security perspective, people are using it to do these things, and that's bad. From a software development, you should not. It may be able to provide you a recommendation, but don't ask it to generate code that you copy and cut and paste because the fidelity of that code is it, it's impossible to manage versus you writing it. A security perspective, I worry about what has publicly been leaked. I worry about people that are using that code in other locations based on other best practices. I also am very concerned about it creating malware. Uh, And this is something that's not hard for any of us to even test. If you were to say, um, please write a PowerShell script to disable all mailboxes in MS-365, it will generate that script for you doesn't know that that could be then bundled with an exploit or someone that has admin access to do something as simple as that. If you get a rejection, sorry, we're not allowed to write malware, then if you properly preface it, it will also trick the system. Uh, I am working on Project X. I need to do Y. Can you help me create something that will do Z? And 
a lot of times the system you see in those prefixes in the beginning in terms of natural language will help you create the missing link for security, uh, for malware that would be a threat to security. So I, I am very cautious of what's coming out. Uh, I've seen it do some very interesting things like write a 1300 word essay on cybersecurity and it will give you a 1300 word essay. So someone spoofing their knowledge, someone using it for malware, someone inappropriate using it for software development are all real threats. And um, it, we got to be mindful of what its potential capabilities are. Yeah, I, 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 I'm extremely bullish on the technology in some areas when I see it, it's incredibly impressive. But yeah, from a cybersecurity point of view, there's yeah, there's a lot of risk associated. And just to, to, to clarify, when you said, I suppose, like leaked information, I think what you're talking about there is that like, if I, a security analyst, get an alert and I'm a little bit confused about it, I can copy and paste it into ChatGPT or use the API and enrich. But if I don't, uh, I suppose, conceal the PII in there, all of a sudden that information, it's unclear right now who owns that information or if it can be used for further training, et cetera. Is that right? That's correct. So if I put my domain name to look for something yeah. up, this, this is why Italy recently just banned ChatGPT because yeah. all of the information someone may be using is being harvested and you have no idea what personally identifiable information, not only for a person, but company, anything is being harvested in process. Those workflows are not secured or mm -hmm. uh, essentially being documented and uh, Italy is the first government to just say, hey, hold on for a second. Um, if I was to say, please write a configuration file for X, here are the, the here's my server name, here's the IP address, here's where I'm going to go get the secrets from. Great. I got my configuration file, but now that's also public domain. Yeah, I hear you. So I suppose last question, using AI or not using AI uh, or involving AI or not involving AI Five years from now, what do you think security operations teams are going to look like? I'm going to actually take that up a level. Um, yeah. I think it's more than just security operations teams. Um, I mentioned before I ingest a lot of information and I heard something quite bold. I'm sorry, I do not know who to contribute it to. But many apps, the way that we know them today and applications that we may use are going to disappear in terms of AI. You yep. will no longer need an airline app because you'll be able to say, please, on airline X, book a flight, tell me my seats, et cetera. And it will be natural language or text-based versus it being a dedicated app. I think that's actually a brilliant vision, especially for apps that are very single-focused, where an artificial intelligence engine could take text, voice, or something else and provide you the results instead. That concept applied to cybersecurity, I think, is what's going to happen in the future. Um, it may be very Star Trek-ish. Please go through the log files and identify this source without you scrolling through it and writing a filter. I think you're going to find the command and control capabilities of this, the security engineer greatly enhanced because it will be able to take that natural language, English, GUI, and apply them in AI and ML to do the response in a more coherent way than we've ever seen before. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, it's it's a little bit uh, a little bit scary, certainly as the as a founder of a cybersecurity company. It's unsure where uh, unsure where the technology is going to take us, but I definitely agree that that's uh, that is the direction that it's going. And I think we and a lot of other companies are going to yeah going to be working hard to make sure that we uh, we make the most of it. Again, it, from a simple perspective, please automate the ticketing responses from X to Y. 
with the following parameters and it's built. <laughs> you know what? I'd love to be able to do that. Flowcharts came a long way on top of algorithms and indented procedures or even a Python script or old school batch files, right? Um, it is the next evolution because it's got to be able to take our natural thoughts and interpret them into machine-based code, et cetera. And I think something like automation, just like we do home automation today, lights go on at six, go off at 11, um, we'll be in that next realm. Yeah, I think this is something we could talk about for a long time. Um, Maury, unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time for today. But if people want to follow your journey, what's the best way to keep up with you? Uh, I'm at Maury Haber, uh, first name, last name, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, I do accept all LinkedIn requests. I know that's very controversial. Um, I do answer almost all of my contacts when someone does message me. Uh, so please, you can find me on either location. And uh, if not, just do a follow on Google. You'll see where I publish on Forbes, Secure Worlds, uh, even the Beyond Trust blogs. And um, if you're ever at a major trade show, most of the time I'm there speaking or writing or talking to clients, happy to meet up as well. Absolutely. And also just if you have a quick uh, quick search on Amazon for Maury Haber, you'll be able to find uh, the, the books that you've written as well. Maury, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I hope we have you on again at some stage in the future. Sounds great. Thank you so much for letting me speak with you today. And everyone be safe. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Future of Security Operations podcast by Tynes. If you enjoyed today's show, please do us a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast platform. For additional episodes, visit tynes.com slash podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about how Tynes Automation Platform can transform your security operations team, visit tynes.com. Thanks again, and I'll catch you on the next episode.